Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. Hey everyone, on Sunday, July 2nd, my next free email series begins. This is a three-week series, completely free, that I will be sending into your email inbox to teach you about healing sexual trauma, liberating your vitality by uncoupling disgust, terror, shame, and anything else that's become overcoupled and associated with sex or sexuality. Again, this is free. It will be three weeks long. You'll get a total of six emails, and you'll learn so much from navigating sexual fawning to finding capacity for pleasure, and even learning how to discern if the things that turn you on are rooted in a trauma reenactment or if they truly create freedom for you. So visit my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and you can sign up for the free three-week email series there. On today's episode, I navigate the... hmm, interesting connection between money and capacity, between how much we charge as a symbol of what we need to take care of ourselves, and building the capacity for somebody's no, even for somebody's yes. And I talk about it with my team, Marika and Camille. Capacity was a big part of how I embraced, like, upping my rates. Like, um, it's funny now that, you know, my rule used to be, okay, let me give them a price that I don't think will shock them. Now it's the opposite. If people aren't shocked by my prices, it's a signal to me that it's too low. 
Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast, where we discuss every aspect of life through the lens of somatic psychology, nutrition, and self-inquiry. My name is Luis Mojica, and I'm a somatic educator who teaches people how to find safety inside themselves so they can better navigate this strange and sensational human experience. Your time to learn begins now. Okay, so um, I was really, you know, I was saying I'm really curious to talk about money, um, specifically through the lens of rates, you know, so individuals, entrepreneurs, someone with a product. uh, There's so much I have learned in the past eight years of my private practice and my business that that has taught me that money is beyond money and it's really linked to to capacity there's a somatic resonance and relationship to money and I, again i'm really only learning it recently but i wanted to play with it and i couldn't think of anyone better to talk to about it than camille marika one because marika was just clutching a burrito shaped <laughs> pillow because it's a difficult topic and two because camille is like she pushes us, you know, like you have built capacity to ask for money. And I want to learn, you know, what that was like for you and what that means. Um, I fear if it was just Marika and I here, I don't know if this, I think our house we built like straw wrappers and we'd be, we'd be living in there together, right? Just What I know is you're going to ask for $5 and I'll be like, what about a hundred? And she'll be like, it's $25,000. <laughs> That's that's exactly right. That is it. That's us in a nutshell. I'm like delusional. You are like average. You are over the top. (laughs) We want to be more like Camille. Yeah, everyone listening. We're not judging Camille. We're aspiring to be like her. Mm -hmm. So let's actually start with you, Camille. Like what? What's what? What was? Let's tell, talk about your lineage with money. Like what was? How did you grow up with it? Without like, tell us the whole story. So, you know, I've shared on some other podcasts that part of my healing journey was coming to the realization that part of me finding safety outside of my body was in money. So a big part of my growing up for my parents and grandparents was get a successful, you know, go to a good college, get a successful job, you have a stable paycheck, and you will be happy as a result of that stable paycheck. So that was a big part of my foundation. Now, wait, wait, does that mean, did your parents have financial stability? Like, did they work hard and they, that's that with their values? They did. So they ended up going to a four-year university and, and their family's one of the first ones to do so. They ended up getting a salary position. They were part of the generation that transitioned from blue collar to white collar. Um, and so they were part of that, you know, we made it kind, kind, of, kind oh, wow. of generation. And then I was supposed to carry that on. Yeah. God, so you and music, Carolyn, really had like a parallel story because she yeah. was talking in her episode about you know, I think she was born more like to like um sound like middle upper class I can't remember but so you would you say you were born into middle upper is that kind of where you were I, I would say definitely middle? middle class yeah um because you know I remember growing up and I would have relatives and uh cousins they come over to the house and be like oh my gosh you 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 guys are rich and I was like what were you talking that you got a backyard and, and so like we were one of <laughs> yeah. the first ones in, in our family set to, to, to have a backyard um mm. And so there is that that uh, that connection to, to to safety being in money. If you do, if you do this, particularly being black in the United States, and then with me in particular being a woman, if you have money, people can't mess with you. Um, and so, so there, there was some, there was sort of that teaching. Yeah, let's stay there because I I think it'd be fun if we all kind of have our backgrounds of money first, and then we can kind of you know 
go follow up. So Marika, what was your history with money? What was that like? Um, I bounced my first check in eighth grade and I've never looked back. <laughs> so you started early. I did. Um, you know, we're comfortable, I think probably middle class. Um, but I don't know, um, maybe, yeah, my dad was a teacher, <clears throat> but, um, because I had some really generous grandparents as well, like I didn't ever like really want for anything. Um, and my parents were, I think, pretty good with money. Um, at least my mom was. And um, and they really tried to instill that in me. And I rejected it wholeheartedly. <laughs> like consciously, you were like, fuck this. No, I just sort of, I just have never been, that's not, it's never been something I was comfortable with. And, um, and I was always weirdly more comfortable not having it, you know, um, and now that I do have some, it's just been an interesting journey reconciling those two things, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, now, and I have a, a kid in who's in his twenties and, you know, I of course also wish that I had taught him how to be better with money, you know, but I also just look at it from a different lens. Um, you know, in the last 10 years, like when you're sick, it's like, and when I'm well, like, I just want to go out and enjoy myself, mm. you know, and, and, and planning for the future hasn't ever really been, hadn't been a part of it. And now it is a part of my life. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've run the gamut, but historically terrible with money. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I love hearing this because I was, I was born into more lower class and then we became middle class. Like, I think when I was 12. I remember my mother like suddenly found one of my dad's tax returns and she was shocked because like he had been living as if we were poor um, because he grew up in an immigrant home. You know, I, I'm, that's such a controversial thing to say nowadays. Like it can sound rude, but that's just my family. And so that the the mentality was like, you don't spend a dime. Like you don't spend anything you have unless it is like an emergency. My grandfather literally uh, hid tens of thousands of dollars in cash all over the house they found when he died. Um, but you would you would never know he had money. He wore ripped clothing. He bought nothing. He only had used cars. Like everything was really frugal, right? Um, and then my mom's side of the family, she grew up extremely poor. They, they would go without eating. So both my parents came from the kind of like, my dad was comfortable, but they lived poor, you know, with that mentality because my grandpa was so afraid of not having money. And my mom grew up with zero money ever. So she overcoupled like joy and freedom to not having money. Like she loved just getting a job and quitting it and traveling and, and kind of living her life just in a really kind of easy minimalist way. So she actually liked not having money. My dad overcoupled like kind of what you were saying, Camille, um, everything with money, but specifically like protection and secrecy was so much interwoven with him with money. So by the time I was 11 or 12, my mom found his tax returns. And she was like, we're middle class. Why are we living this way? Like, why are we arguing over groceries and shoes? And then it kind of like, things started shifting a bit. Not crazy, but it like we went on, you know, one vacation a year, two days a year, you know, things like that within this big lifestyle. Um, but what we inherit is what I'm interested about with this conversation we're starting to weave. Because I, I, overcoupled money as a bad thing for a long, 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 long time. Um, and I won't say bad in the way of like capitalism bad, bad like relationally. Like I thought if I had money, I'd be like my grandpa, my dad. 
And I'd be really hard on people and I'd be really withheld and I'd be very stingy and I wouldn't be happy. And so mm-hmm. I thought it, every time I get money, I have got to like release it right away. I have to buy something with it for somebody else, like go on a trip or like give it away, literally give it to someone in the street. Like I couldn't hold it for more than an hour or two the moment I got a paycheck. So I was just spending, spending, spending. So just to go over to Camille now, you overcoupled money with security. You become an adult. We know your history. You go into the corporate world to make money. What happens next? Uh, so um, really the first, you know, now I'm, I'm making a salary for the first time, time in my life. And so, you know, we're talking about, you know, five, five figures, nothing crazy, just like out of college. But one of the first things you're going on interviews and they ask you, what would you like to make? And I didn't realize how unprepared I was for that question. Like co- coming up through business school, they do all these mock interviews and things like that, but they don't really address that. But, you know, I, I kind of done some research and, 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 and I provided a salary that, that, that I was comfortable with and I got it. But what I also realized, or I, I can re- look at, look back and, and realize is that I also provided a number that I didn't think they would balk at that. I knew they they would accept or would it keep me from getting the job? Um, And so that was really the first time I started putting a numerical value to my worth and my time and what I'm able to provide. And yeah, there were some learnings that had to happen from that point to where I am now. Now, those learnings... Did you learn that just by diving in? Because this was before you did work with us. You didn't mm-hmm. have this language of somatics. Yeah. So like, how did, you, how did you build your capacity without those words at the time to actually say, this is my worth, this is what I want? Yeah, so it was definitely a process. So first, I had to realize that I was being undervalued by the companies that that I was working for. So, and it, and it wasn't surprised. Like, I knew about paid pay gap disparities, but I was, I could look at the work I was providing. I could literally look at the income and the revenue I was bringing to to these companies. And I could also know that so-and-so was getting paid a lot more than I am. And when I would even try to raise that, like in the, but still like really, really in a polite way, it was dismissed. It was like, oh, it's no big deal or that's life or Oh, you should have asked for more when you joined the company. It was always just sort of dismissed. So there's first just that realization of not only do I know I'm getting underpaid, these people know they're underpaying me. And it was just first just sit, sitting with that. And even building up enough capacity to say like, hey, I think I'm getting underpaid. And, and even just to have it dismissed, there, there had to be enough capacity in me to do that. But it really, I really started to explore it when I um seriously considered leaving corporate America and, and like really working for myself and trying to understand. So then if, if I'm setting my own prices, what does that look like? And in order for me to do that, I had to do a lot of research and it really helped when I came across this phenomenon or statistic of, again, not just this pay disparity, which I knew about that women and people of color generally get paid less, but that you go in accepting less when you're a woman or you're a person of color, whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're an employee, you will go in asking for less money 
than usually a straight white male would because you're afraid that, oh, they're not going to hire me or they're going to balk at these prices. They'll, they, they, and then I'm just not going to make any money at all. So let me give them a price that they'll, they'll accept. And so it was really interesting to sit with it from that perspective of, yes, there are external forces that can push your, your, your prices lower, but then there are internal forces. Okay, pause right there. Or pushing your prices lower. Yeah. That's so good. I just want to, I want to go into this internal force place. Because I think, I mean, that's the work that I love to talk about the most. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I don't like to deny reality, but I love to find our agency within reality. And part of this, I just literally just learned this before we got on here, because I've never been in any corporate position. So I didn't realize you went in and kind of like named your price in the, in the way the way you have. And that's amazing because all my life when I heard, you know, again, pay gap or disparity, especially in these corporate settings, I always thought it was like, no, they assigned you an amount based on your race or your gender. Um, But you're saying in your experience and a lot of these corporate experiences, it comes from really what we're talking about is the fawn response. It comes from, I'm going to say something low enough that I know they can't say no because you have a historical experience, you know, with um, whether it's marginalization um, or you're the first one of your family. So it's very new. So you don't think you're worth a lot you know, you're, or you don't think they think you're worth a lot. I think this is fascinating because I wrote down something uh, Marika said, more comfortable not having money. And whenever we say I'm more comfortable with dot, 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 whatever that is, we're talking about what we have capacity for. So if I'm really comfortable saying to my boss, you know what, I know this is like a 60k a year job, I'm very happy with 35, I won't make a sound, I'll be so good, I work overtime. I have capacity to ask for that, even though I know I'm worth twice that. And I res- I've always resonated with statistics that come out about women, because I'm much more feminine than most men in a lot of situations. So I- I've totally undercut myself when I, you know, the few jobs I have where I was able to ask for a raise, I would go in and be like, I have 25 cents when I knew I could ask for $3 because I knew they would say yes. So I, ha- I didn't have the capacity to assert even how I valued myself. So I'm, I'm shifting into this place so we can all kind of play with our rate as our capacity, our need, and how we value ourselves. Where do we want to go with that? Where, where does that take us? Well, yeah, capacity was a big part of how I embraced like upping my rates. Like, um, it's funny now that, you know, my rule used to be, okay, let me give them the price that I don't think will shock them. Now it's the opposite. If people aren't shocked by my prices, it's a signal to me that it's too low. Um, Yeah. Gosh, this is why I just have to say this is why when I uh, put out my newsletter about my retreat that sold out in two hours, (laughs) everyone's congratulating me. And then uh, Camille texted me, congratulations, Dash, that's a sign of a low fee. <laughs> like straight up calling me out. I was like, okay, thanks for popping my ego bubble. <laughs> but you're right. Like, I, you know, I, I tend to put out rates that are so low, you almost like have to do it because yeah. you're not even going to think twice. Yes. And both of you have been stretching me, which I appreciate. But but let, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what are you thinking, Marika? I saw her make a face. Um, I was thinking my, it doesn't necessarily feel capacity for like the, like a rate. I felt like it was more capacity for hearing no. You know what I mean? Yeah. I love that. Where I, the, the goal is to go in and not feel awkward, uncomfortable, embarrassed that 
they said no to me, you know? Um, and so, you know, you go to the number you want and you back off a little. <laughs> it was kind I of how that. I do. And I never had to do that very much in corporate. I was lucky that I worked more in percentages because I was in like the spa industry. But um, when I had to get out of the spa industry, you know, um, and and it was like, you know, what what salary are you looking for? I mean, I had no idea. I'd be Googling it in the car <laughs> on my way into the, into the interview. And if the number was too high and I was uncomfortable with it, I would not go anywhere near it, even though I knew this was like the market rate. Mm-hmm. No, but it just would be like, I, it just feels weird to have to say that out loud that I want, deserve, and need X amount of money. You know, you're you're bringing me to a place in myself of the vulnerability that comes in from asking, you know, really like anything, but especially asking something that is so risky. Like when Camille says, if I don't think they're going to be shocked, I won't even I won't even go there now. Like I want that I want the number to be shocking. That's that's a, that would be a risk for so many people, um, whether it's a risk to their actual livelihood or a risk to their ego, like we're talking about here with the no and the rupture that comes from the no. So I'm also hearing a capacity for vulnerability. Because, um, like, you know, those of you listening, this was the first year after three years that I raised the rate for my six week course. It was for the longest time, it was a $300 course. And I mean, so much had changed with this course went from four weeks to six weeks, it went from one meeting a week to now it's four meetings a week, it went from replays only to now you can download everything It went to audio exercises. I mean, this course became like a six week lifestyle. Um, And so I doubled it this year for 600. And that most of me was really ready, especially with so much support from you two. And there there was this, I could feel this vulnerability in me that was saying, a lot of people are going to say no now. Right, because it, it it's to me it's still super accessible for what I'm offering, but compared to what it was, it might not be accessible in people's minds or realities. So that vulnerability, I think there's a capacity building there. And I wonder, I'm going back to Camille for a moment, how how did and do you navigate that vulnerable place of like this person might turn me away because I'm asking for a lot? Yeah, it was the I didn't have the word for it then, but it was really the uncoupling of, I can't afford you from your bad. Someone says, I can't afford that. That's literally all it means. There is no other meaning or connotation around it. All it means is they, they can't afford me right now. So be it. Um, and, and, and that's what I had to um, come to a place of, of, of some comfort and, and settling in. Cause I found like when I was undercutting myself, that was really coming from a place of scarcity of like, but, but if they say no, nobody else is ever going to say, no one else is going to say yes, then I'm not going to be able to play my bill. And it was just this snowball or it was, well, you know, who am I? I'm asking for this. It was, it was all these other things, but if I could just focus on this one person or this one company said, I can't afford that. Okay and move on to the next that that that's all it was that was really um really helpful for me and sort of back to what we were talking about as well I also just oriented to the prices that I set I set allow me to have the capacity to do the work that I do like I think about um in order for me to do the work that I do 
I don't want to go grocery shopping. I don't want to uh, mow my my lawn. Uh, you know, I don't want to iron my husband's shirts. So I outsource that work so I have the capacity to do it. I have to be able to fund those things. So I also orient to that. Um, and again, that's all it means. That That's all it's related to. Okay, so I'm lit up. Um, <laughs> two reasons. I'm lit up because... I love the awareness of the uncoupling there. Because that's, as you're saying, I could feel parts of me uncoupled that were still braced. And that's a big one, isn't it? You know, if we think about, oh, if I over, like when you said about the no, Marika, the no is so scary, not because the no, because what's overcoupled, that's what we're actually afraid of. So if the no means I'm not worth much to them, that's what it means to us. We do not want to hear that no. But if we just hear no, they don't have it, they don't want to have it. It's whatever their story is, it's theirs. And there's no overcoupling. We just gracefully move on to the next person or the next ask. So that's a, gr- a great kind of real life example of how overcouplings run our lives, you know, without until we understand they're there and how to separate them. So I, I love that. And, you know, one of the things I want to talk about, you just you, you just mentioned rates, nurture, serve, build our capacity. You know, the money we make is literally a transfer of energy to build capacity. And it's not transfer of energy like value in a mental space. To me, it's a somatic transfer. So depending on what I'm getting, it allows my body to have capacity to do whatever the work it is I do. And I think this is where for my work, at least, I, well, I guess both of you now, because the work you do with me, the, when you're doing trauma work, there's a, a natural overcoupling that you should be like a humble servant. Um, and I came from an Irish Catholic, you know, upbringing. So I remember seeing the nuns wake up from their convents and have no material belongings. They could never get married. They could never have kids. Because just like the Ayahuasqueros in South America, there was an extra communication from the community and the society. So you only could focus on healing and serving. Now, if you have no responsibility in the world, except for serving, you have a shit ton of capacity to serve. But when you're living in a modern setting where you have bills and you have a family and you're navigating your own illnesses, perhaps your own life, you don't have capacity just to serve because your capacity also goes to life and responsibilities. So I'm saying that, especially for those listening, because those of us in the healing field, we think we're not allowed to, to, to live at a certain level of finance, or ask for a certain rate or or whatever it is, how we how we um, charge for a project, whatever it is, because our work is healing, it should be accessible, even if to the detriment of our own capacity. So can we unpack that together a little bit? And actually, I want Marika to start because I know you you're much more you're much <laughs> you trauma bond with me around that more than Camille does right now. So like, where, where does that go for you? How do you handle that with people we have to turn away, let's say and stuff like that? Kind of like, you know, how I came to this work, I just think, um, you know, maybe it's, it's just not aligned, you know, maybe it's just, um, they're not, they're not, I mean, it's not necessarily they're not ready, but um, we have turned people away who have then come back, you know, um, and whatever it is that changed in them, you know, they made it work. Um, and I know for me, I've had to have a lot of, um, well, you and I have had a lot of uh, shoring up resources so that I can say no to people. <laughs> um, sort of the reverse fawn or whatever it is, because 
you know, I want everybody to have access to this work and that type of a thing. But I also know, you know, just it's, I want people to have access to this work and we're also a business. Um, and so, you know, making sure that I remember um, that we're at that intersection, you know, and that we can offer other things. Like if they can't afford the course, we have other things that we get to, that I get to offer to them that are mm -hmm. affordable. Mm -hmm. um, it's when there's not something that I can, you know, if we didn't have anything to offer instead, because, um, you know, you have so many free things out there, the podcast and Instagram and, you know, um, and the webinars on, on our, our website are pretty, pretty inexpensive. Like that settles my nervous system because then I know that I'm, we're still being able to have our hand out to people, you know? Um, but I also know that we're taking care of ourselves on the other end by saying no to some, to saying no when we need to. So I want to highlight what you just said, just for everyone listening. Let's see what it's like as a practice, whether we all want to do this in our mind right now, or when you go into the world, the next time you see a product, the next time you want to work with someone, you see what their rate is. Let's see that that amount as what the person needs to take care of themselves. Because I love that you just said that, like, we're also taking care of ourselves. And if we can overcouple over positively someone's rate or fee with Again, what they need to take care of themselves, just like you said, Camille, like someone has to mow my lawn, I want like, a, a, I'm assuming a meal delivery service or some kind of catering and like someone takes care of our laundry. That's what you need to have the capacity to parent two small kids and work really hard in the work you do to make enough money to, you know, create safety for your family and, and sustenance. So if it's about, I guess what I'm saying is if I'm looking at someone's rate, and my first thought is, that's too much. You know, what I'm doing is I'm not being curious about what that means for me or them. But if I see it, and I'm like, Oh, I don't have that right now. That's what they need to feel good about offering this. Then I'm going into a relational curiosity of Oh, this is what they need to feel good about offering this This is what they need to sustain themselves. I don't have it right now. Let me reorient to where I can get some kind of, you know, accessibility or some kind of help. And that, that is what we've created. We've created these these webinars, like 25 bucks. And we have the somatic drop-in and the addiction circle every month that are free. I, I do the navigating episodes on the podcast so people know there's something they can do a free practice with every other week. There's Instagram. I've had so many people tell me, oh, I'm so glad you have Instagram. I, I don't even have to go to therapy anymore and I couldn't afford it and I couldn't find it. So there are these places that exist that... I mean, the brilliance of technology where I can do this one conversation with you two for an hour and it lives and anyone can check it out and it doesn't strain any of us out because we already did it. Like there's a there's a reciprocity and a generosity to that, to working in that, that realm. So I, I just love this idea of uh, this allows us to take care of ourselves. And I'm going to go into something in a moment, but I want to go to Camille. Okay, I see you lighten up over there. Start thinking something's going on. Well, what do you what do you want to add? Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's exactly what it is for me. Like, this is what allows us to take care of ourselves. And I, I always like to remind myself and others that it's not about cost, it's about value. So oftentimes we're like, but this would only cost you or we estimate this would only cost you X, Y, Z to do this. I prefer to focus. What is the value? 
And it's okay if what I perceive the value to be and what you perceive the value to be aren't aligned, then we don't have to work with each other. But it's also about what what is this value to you? And not just the value I might be paying as a customer, but the value I'm paying as a provider. For example, for me to do one hour of one-on-one work with someone, I have to not only think about what it costs me to do that hour, but what else I could be doing with this hour. I could be playing with my children. I could be doing some yoga. I could be reading that book I've been wanting to catch up on. So there is a trade-off for me. There has to be a, 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 a trade-off that is is worth it, frankly. Um, and again, I'm at a point where I don't have a lot of guilt or apology in saying that, but I know there are a lot of people who do like they, that, that sounds selfish. You're, and I and we've talked about this before. I think that's where that sense of entitlement comes from. I'm entitled to your time. No, you're not. Nobody is entitled to my time. It is my choice who I choose to give my time to and for what I choose to exchange it. See, you just read my mind because I'm going to talk about the entitlement piece. And and that's exactly right. Um, You know, when you start looking at everything through a somatic lens, at least for me, it really humbles and grounds me. And it takes me way away from entitlement, because I realize anything I think I'm entitled to literally translates into I'm entitled to your body. Because everything that we offer comes through our bodies. You know, for for me to have the mental clarity to teach a really successful course, like, let's say, like one 90 minute lecture, my brain, my nutrition, my biochemistry, me being in a triggered place, me being grounded, all that my lifestyle accounts for how I show up for that 90 minutes. So you're not paying me for a 90 minute lecture, you're paying me for how I live. And that lecture is the is like my platform to express from how I live. And I think that if we can see it that way, like you're saying, like not cost, but value, especially the part of, you know, I'm doing this for 90 minutes. There's so I could be doing yoga, I could be gardening, I could be playing with my daughter, I could be helping someone for free. Like there's a lot of things I could be doing in my life. I'm here with you, right? And so it's also not just what I'm doing with you in the Sunday minutes, but what I'm not doing in my own life. And I think for those of us in any kind of service industry, um, whether it's someone that's a waitress or someone that's a therapist, like we're using our body and our capacity and our breath and our and our brain and heart to connect and offer something to you. And that's a privilege as far as I'm concerned. Like that's not something I think we just think we should have. Um, where do you go with that, Marika? What are you thinking? I mean, I definitely agree that, you know, if <clears throat> that it is the body, that it is a service, that it's something that we really choose to do. Um, you know, I specifically was a manicurist for many, 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 many years. And that was, it was, it was really, it was hard on the body, but it definitely like, because it's a relational type of um, business, you know, and I had repeat people and I knew people for 10 years or 20 years or whatever. Um, <clears throat> I really enjoyed it because I did get to choose who I wanted to spend my time with, um, you know, and then there were other people who would come in that I didn't know and I never saw them again or whatever, but, but within kind of the, the majority of my clients were people that I'd had for many, many, many years. And so it was <clears throat> doubly rewarding, you know, to be able to spend time with people and give them my time um, and do stuff like participate in their weddings, you know, and their anniversaries and um, their big birthdays or whatever it was. Um, 
it it was it got beyond you know the thing that I did um and the relational part to me was where I got the most benefit from you know the the benefit the money was good but um you know it it wasn't just going in and clocking in and clocking out that I don't think that would have appealed to me you know um <clears throat> that there was an opportunity to create relationships within my within that um you know is something that I really relate to in our business you know like I know we have lot hundreds and hundreds of people but you know we also we've seen people for you know a few years at least if not more um and have been able to create relationships with them in a in the way that I know that they understand what they're what what we're offering and what they're getting you know and <clears throat> and I feel like there's a really good relationship there um I don't even know if I answered your question <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, I anything you say is perfect for me. Um, I love that. No, I love that piece, the relational piece. That's important to me. Because again, I think when we're talking about money, it's hard because um, there are a lot of triggers and overcouplings with money and with capitalism and with products and all these things. Um, I, and I'm, I'm kind of curious, this is, I don't know if it's a big question or not, I'll find out. But I always saw and see capitalism as this like really beautiful instrument, um, which is hard to say, right? Well, not hard for me to say, hard for people to hear. Um, because I think we conflate capitalism. And I was talking about this with Simone when she was on the podcast. I think we overcouple capitalism with uh, consumerism and materialism and corporatism. But they have, they're not inherently part of capitalism like capitalism is just i created something and i have the right to sell it to you and you have the right to deny it like it's a super free empowering <laughs> agency you know gifting solution to a lot of things um when it gets filled with you know corporatism and fascism and 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 you know outsourcing to other countries that we deplete the resources through it that's that's a whole different arm but the the root of it is just kind of like just like you said, Camille, okay, I'm deciding the value of something, you have every right to deny that value or take it. Where do you two go with that? Um, my, okay, I'm just go gonna say my favorite podcast is an anti capitalist podcast called upstream. So that's all <laughs> I'm gonna say. I want to hear what Camille has to say. <laughs> so, so yeah, I felt so for me, I, I, I get when people say like, oh, capitalism is bad. I know where they're coming from. But to me, it's not capitalism is, isn't bad. Toxic capitalism is bad. In the same way, masculinity is not bad. Toxic masculinity is bad. And on both sides, we can conflate the two. But to your point, the actual premise, whether it's capitalism or socialism or other economic forms, or I feel the same way about uh, religion, like the the actual basis, the idea of of of, of the the philosophy is great. It's when we start to throw in all that other stuff, usually rooted in colonization, where it starts to ebb into that toxic that toxic place. We actually move away from the the underpinning of it. So, like to your point, the underpinning of capitalism is: I have a product. If people want it, they buy it. If they don't, I'll stop making it. That's the idea where we start to see that toxicity come in is where we, we we start putting in rules that actually don't allow for that even playing field or we start um taking advantage of certain populations things of that nature that to me isn't capitalism that's toxic capitalism i i agree with you and i think when i think of um 
I, you know, I'm always seeing everything through that decolonial lens of relationship or uh, domination. And when I'm using the tool of capitalism that I'm born into, like, I'm not going to, I don't think capitalism will dismantle in my lifetime. I don't think so. Maybe my great grand grandchildren, who knows, but it's not going to get, go away in my lifetime. So what I've learned the same thing with trauma, how you can't just make someone's trauma go away. What you do with trauma as you you two know, is we slowly titrate by tr we transform it. So we relate to it, we get curious, we create a relationship. So instead of me saying, I hate capitalism, I'm interested in saying, well, what's the being of capitalism? Like, what's its true spirit without all the toxicity surrounding it, like you said, Camille? And how can I relate to it to transform it? Mm -hmm. And what we do at HLN is like perfect example because the product is a relationship. It's not a thing. So you're not getting some plastic box that you have to throw into a landfill. Like you're getting real human interest and curiosity and connection. And, and then we've seen this, especially in the membership, we've seen members then create their own like side um, offerings, right? We, we have this little space called external offerings, just for those of you listening. And people will put things in there, like, like someone does a, a beautiful vocal sanctuary. Someone else did a conversation around this for practitioners. People do like women's circles. People do like queer circles, like all these different things that emerge. And I think it's just it's just beautiful to see how capitalism all these people giving us their money and then we create this capacity for ourselves and all of them to have a safe space to relate and grow from it's this beautiful again example to me of a, a non-toxic very balanced like relational form of, of capitalism where it's it's so rooted in the ethics of what's relating here and what's dominating here what do you think about that, Camille? Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Marika. What do you think? I'm going to eat it. I'm going to eat it to this giant burrito. <laughs> okay, so Marika has these moments where you have to go on YouTube to see them. And right now she is holding a plush black bean burrito. And uh, it's giant and it's adorable. And it reminds me of something from my youth. Really? Something Something disturbing. I'm trying to think what it is. I've got some kind of like strange... Don't oh, sully my that? burrito. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you what it is. I'll, I'll, if I figure it out, I'll let you know. Um, but no, truly, what do you think about that? I'm curious where that goes to you because you're anti-capitalist, which I, I love that we have someone differing here. Like, where, where does it go for you? Well, I mean, I think I'm anti-capitalist to the anti-toxic capitalism. Um, you know, I'm certainly on the on the way to, because I really like, you know, Camille, what you said, that made a lot of sense to me. Um, and also, I just feel incredibly confronted by a lot of the issues around capitalism every day. Um, and it feels like sweeping water back into the ocean, you know. Um, but I, I do, I really like the idea of, um, of, wow, you know, how we offer and how at HLN, and the relational parts. I think it's hard for me to get out of binary thinking, no matter what it is we're talking about. And so it's just good for me to notice those things. But yeah, capitalism for me is is bad when I look at it through specific lens, you know, and uh, and and the things that I've had to do for it, you know, over mm. the years, <laughs> the fawning and the hustling and the grinding and um. And so trying to find what's been interesting for me with working with HLN is making steady money and figuring out how I'm going to exist in a, in a capitalism world um, 
in a way where I still feel good <laughs> about how I'm, what I'm offering, how I'm, how I'm showing up, what I'm donating to, like whatever it is. Um, that's kind of where I'm at with, with that. But I, I like that we are trying to do it more relationally and, um, you know, and in the spirit of, of helping people, you know, um, that's, that to me is the most important part and that we're trying to, you know, that our culture, we're trying to make our culture a little bit different, which Mm -hmm. I find really, um, calming, you know, it's really a soothing to my nervous system knowing that it's like, oh, I don't have a boss who's like a boss and I don't have a, you know, um, I don't ever feel like I'm going into work and it's like, we got to make money, you know, like that type of a thing. We're just supposed to show up as ourselves and help other people. And we actually get to make money doing it, Mm. which I wish more people had that experience. Yeah. We're so lucky when you put it that way. I'm like, we're so lucky. It's amazing. And yeah, you definitely don't have a boss that wants to make money. (laughs) You have a, you have a boss who's enjoying making money for the first time in his life. But if 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 it wouldn't be for you two, I'd be like, still being like yeah you can come to the course for free <laughs> it's five dollars next year next year next week will be three dollars <laughs> no louise wrong way <laughs> well this is it's it's important for people to hear because i remember when i was in private practice before i hired marika I I had so many clients. So I used to think it was just normal. I always thought, oh, I have the normal amount. Like this is what full-time private practice looks like. And I'd be I'd be with colleagues or I'd be in peer supervision and everyone would be sharing how many clients they had. And everyone had like 20 to 30. I was like, 20 to I had 60 a week. I was like, 20 to 30? And yeah. and I I didn't realize how much I was burning myself out until I got more into the somatic awareness. Because if someone lost their job, like in the middle of therapy with them, I would not discontinue. If someone, you know, suddenly, even people that were like, so transparent, they were like, I really want to go to um, Bali. Um, I, I can't afford sessions anymore. I'd be like, Oh, it's okay, pay me what you can. So it wasn't even people <laughs> that didn't have the money, they were prioritizing other things. And so I had such bad uh, money boundaries, because I just wanted to serve. But then I, Marika knows this, especially through five, six years of building a practice on just serving with no money boundaries, I couldn't pay my taxes for five years. I'm still paying taxes from six years ago because they built up and they became they became like a mortgage, you know, they're huge. And so I'm really learning now, oh, I actually can serve better when I have really good money boundaries because I can ensure my survival. I can ensure like crises, even with the team in the future, if there's things that come up with us and we need more money, knowing that, oh, I don't have to fall back on paying all my taxes four years later, you know, in small little payment chunks, I can do it now and then be called up. So in case there's a medical, you know, whatever it is, but it's this real security of this is what I need now to be able to take care of all of you really well and show up really, really beautifully. And so I I just, I just, um, I'm loving this conversation because it's so nice to talk about money in a real way. That isn't like, we're not presencing it as what is important about it. And we're not denying it as if it doesn't exist and we don't care about it. Like all three of us love money. Like I've seen it, <laughs> I've experienced it. It's like we have, <laughs> have nothing where you doing thumbs up. Like none of us have an issue receiving money. My issue was like Camille opened this, this talk about was how to actually say what I wanted financially. I, I couldn't. 
You tell me what you want to give me. I can handle that. But for me to tell you what you're going to give me, I can't handle that. Mm -hmm. Um, But now I can. It's amazing. But here's one thing that I find interesting. And Camille, I'd love to know if if, I'm sure it's the same. But now that I were, you know, where I'm at now is so different than, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, And now once you, for me, once I hit a certain point, like rate or, you know, where I'm like, oh, I am, I do feel like I'm being, you know, uh, compensated in a, in a, in a way that works for me. You know what I mean? It is really hard for me to see myself going back. Do you know what I mean? It. I don't think that I could walk into a room now and not ask for at least this. You know what I mean? Like where I'm at now. Um, because it just would not feel right, you know, in my body. And um, not just here's what my bills are and I need to be able to pay stuff, but that like well, once I tasted it, it's like we're not going back. <laughs> I'm not going back to bargain basement champagne, Louise. It's not happening. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I'm the same way. And um, yeah, I can't really see myself like going back um, in terms of being uncomfortable with walking away from something just because they couldn't afford it. Um, and like, I really, how do I feel? I like being able to set certain prices because there are those one-offs where, oh yeah, I'll do this for, for a lot lower for an individual or for a nonprofit organization. Yeah. What I charge a corporate organization is vastly different than what I would charge a nonprofit organization. But what I charge a corporate organization gives me the capacity to not charge as much for a nonprofit. And so I like, like, like you said, not having or having that space. And yeah, I can't, I can't see myself going back. Yeah. I love I love hearing that with both of you. It's inspiring yeah. because it I what I what I sense as well for you, Mariko, and I think of what you're saying is like it's not just like this last year or two that took you to the point you're at. Your whole life brought you to this point. So yeah. if I think of you like getting another job, which you're not allowed to, no. um, <laughs> you're never you're never leaving me. <laughs> but, but if I imagine that happening, it, it's like you have a felt sense of how your whole life, especially the work that we do, your whole life informs your your skill set. Mm-hmm. It's not just what you do in a year or hour by hour. So mm-hmm. it's like paying people based on their whole life experience. Um, that's a whole that's a whole other level to what we're talking about, and and seeing people's rates as that. Like, what have we been saying? We like when, like when we do the course, we always say six weeks to learn, a lifetime to practice. And you keep reminding people, both of you keep reminding people, took Louis 17 years. You're paying $600 to learn in six weeks. I spent 17 years of my life, half of those years suffering deeply trying to understand. That's a bargain. <laughs> like That is a bargain. <laughs> and so I'm really learning, you know, it's it's the whole of the person and their experience that you get even in that one hour with them. It's not the hour. Yes. So it's good for people to hear that because if you're working with it, because I I remember when I, I was at poverty level and I was going to hypnosis because I was having such brutal flashbacks and PTSD, I couldn't function. And I thought I need to go hypnosis because there's something unconscious. I didn't know somatics at the time. And uh, I think the session was $75. And that was breaking the bank for me. Like I didn't make that in it took me like three or four days to make that much money. So I was like, okay, 75 bucks, I'm going to do it. 
because I knew that I was getting this like constellation of this woman in this two hour session. And I knew if I really dropped into that so much would would come up for me instead of the idea of like oh, 75 for two hours that that's insane, but I'm going to need at least 10 sessions of like, I'm going to get every inch of these two hours. And it changed my life. That one session changed my life. And I think it even helped usher me to somatics. So I don't know if anyone wants to add to that before we close. Yeah. Yeah. I I was going to say, I had a similar experience. I joined a a membership. This is me uh, going, uh, leading up to leaving corporate America. And I still need some uh, support or guidance. And so I joined a year long membership. It was a $3,000 commitment. Um, but I was like, okay, I'm going to get this membership for one year, but I'm going to get so much out of this one year. And so it sort of forced me to be committed. I knew it wasn't something I, I didn't have the financial capacity to be in this membership like year after year after year. But okay, for one year, I'm going to make this financial commitment. And then because of this financial commitment, I'm going to make the time commitment, the space commitment. And I, I got a lot out of it. And it really did support mm-hmm. my impetus to to leave the corporate space. Um there is one other thing I wanted to put in the space just so that I, I want folks to understand, like there's sort of this balance, or at least for me, when it comes to my relationship with money. Yes, I got to a point where I could set my my prices and my rates without apology or without fawning, but it really was rooted in this idea of agency, this idea of agency to be able to walk away from a relationship if they couldn't afford me, but also the agency to walk away from certain lifestyle things if I couldn't afford them anymore. Like one of the reasons that I was really stuck in the corporate space is that there was this overcoupling of, well, if I can't pay my mortgage, I'm going to lose my house. And then people are going to judge me. Well, maybe I just downsize. Yeah. I got, maybe, maybe I just get a smaller house because you know, you can take the stress. I'll take less. Like I'm now in this place where I, I realized, well, okay, if I'm not bringing in X amount, what are some things I can change about my lifestyle? that will still support the capacity I need to, to, to function as the person I want to. So I, I just wanted to make sure that people understood there was that aspect to it as well. I'm so glad you brought that in because I was, it was swirling in me and I didn't know when or how to bring it in that the intention for me to have this conversation with you two isn't to speak about everyone should aim to make a lot of money. Yeah, it, It's to really speak about agency And if I have a certain lifestyle that I'm currently living and it beckons a certain amount of money and I'm okay with that, yes, I'm going to charge more. If the reality is people don't buy my product anymore and I have to, when I doubled the course, I remember I did the same thing you were just talking about. I was like, okay, what's the worst that would happen? I'd reduce my rate to what it was before. I'd have to pay people less or they'd have to work less. And I would have to maybe even move to another state because New York state is getting expensive, like, for real. And I thought, would that really be the worst thing in the world to have an adventure to move to another state and live, you know, have half of the amount of money that it takes for me to live in New York state? I thought, no, that'd be a beautiful new adventure. And that's what would be there for me. So the agency to have the flexibility of, and this is where, this is why I like capitalism. And I, I really don't like saying that because... <laughs> <laughs> 
this is why I like capitalism. So Marika's trying to conspire right now, live on air with Will, who edits this to sound by me to, to get me canceled. I um, love so. capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess what I mean is I love our agency within capitalism. That's what I really just like. I don't ever say I, I guess I do say I love trauma. I don't like love that people get hurt, but I love our agency with the spirit of trauma. It's the same with capitalism. I'm like, if everyone didn't buy Coca-Cola for one month, do you realize how quick you could dismantle an oppressive system? I mean, it's like, that's how much power capitalism brings. So to me, I light up thinking, well, the reality of capitalism is if I'm unethical in my prices, people aren't going to pay. And that's good. That keeps me, it's like a a natural check and balance. There's something almost pagan about it, you know, like the laws of nature. And I think, beautiful. So I'm going to have to listen to that if that's the reality. And then I let my life take me to where that takes me. So that, that second piece of, well, okay, this is great. I love my rate. I love my life. Do I have capacity to pendulate to a different experience? That's the reality of it. What do you think, Marika? We have to close. I want to know what your thoughts are. Um, just the, this, that the formula and what you're talking about and like the, and these goals and stuff work so well for like entrepreneurs and like, you know, that type of thing where I, where it's sticky for me is thinking about when I was purely in survival mode, you know, and like, it was, I either needed to take that job or live in my car, you know, that type of thing. But that even that can be in support of your practice for leveling up and slower right and over time and you know we love slow things here (laughs) but you know it isn't really it isn't just if it's that job or 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 poverty that taking that job that maybe is not the thing that you necessarily wanted can at least get you to the next point you know because we do still have to survive so what you just said no, what you said is really important because if we, if you're able to have these pra- that that kind of experience can suck if you don't have a practice like the ones we use. It can, and I've had oh my god a decade of those experiences, mm-hmm. and luckily I had the practices because they lived in me. I didn't have the language for them, but I was just kind of intuitively playing with what you just said, titration. You know, which was like okay, I'm living on a, you know, those like futon mattresses. I'm living on a futon mattress in my friend's like nicotine filled attic, <laughs> which was like amazing. <laughs> I didn't have to pay rent, but it's like, this isn't what I thought my life would be like when I'm you know, <laughs> in my 20s. And, but then I get a job at a corner store at a gas station, $7 an hour, right? And I'm like, titration, I start here. And, and just the gratitude of that job and the friends I made and the, the wisdom they gave me. I mean, I use things from the, those year, that one year at that job I use in my private practice and the course because the amount of things I learned from people there, it, incredible. And so what you're saying is important because if I'm oriented toward what I wish I was having, I'm going to instantly feel a despair with my current reality. But when I orient toward, okay, what does this serve for me now? And this is fleeting. Can I be with it now? It just gently takes me to the next place. Yeah. And we we could probably do, and we should probably do a podcast just about that, you know, because we are talking entrepreneurially now. That's all of our experiences. But it'd be great to talk about, you know, from our early experiences, how we navigated some of that or how we would have if we had these practices. Sounds mm-hmm. really good. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Anyone have any closing statements or words or anything you want to throw out before we go? 
general <laughs> financial advice for any entrepreneurs out there, particularly women and people of color and LGBTQIA, whatever your prices are, double them. Mm -hmm. You heard it. You heard it straight from the teacher's mouth. Yeah, listen to Camille. <laughs> listen to Camille. <laughs> because I just started listening to Camille and it's working. Rika, what do you want to add? I mean, I think listen to Camille is probably what I want to add. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I it's a money is also a practice. It's emotional. It's something that you can, you know, it felt like something that just was a tornado that happened in my life. And now it's really nice to be able to make actual decisions and have some agency in what money means in my life. You know, mm -hmm. I love it. Thank you both so much. So that's the end of today's episode. Notice where you feel the episode inside of your body. Those sensations, those expressions, that's how your body speaks to you. Sit with it, be with it, and let whatever wants to come up, come up. Because all the wisdom you're looking for is right there in those sensations. If you want to go deeper into these practices or find more information about my work, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.